Hello, humans. Now, I could come up with a creative introduction where I pretend that there's any theme to this conversation, or I could just be honest with you and let you know that we really went all over the place, and I love it. Today's guest is Pete Holmes. He's probably best known as a comedian, but he's also a screenwriter, an author, a podcaster, and an actor. His show is called Crashing. His podcast is called You Made It Weird. His book is called Comedy Sex God. And he's a really lovely human. He's a spiritual giant, as some would say. And I really appreciate his take on humanity, the, the way he carries himself, and the way he thinks about life. So I just want to jump right in. Here is my conversation with Pete Holmes. Hey, Pete. Hey, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me in your home. And Oh, this is not my home. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I like to start. We'll just jump right in. Sure. And I like to start with a pretty... Yeah, what is this podcast? This is the How to Human podcast. How to Human podcast. Yeah. It's no, uh, it's no disrespect to the podcast. I just don't... I want to know what it is. What are we... I want to give you what you want. I was high and drunk from 12 to 22. And 12 to 22, high and drunk. I started to learn how to be an adult as an adult, which is really awkward. I think we have that in common. Yeah, because you're kind of expected to, you know, not be making major fuck-ups at that point. And mm -hmm. I didn't know how to be a friend or a partner or anything. I knew how to, like, use people. Mm -hmm. So that's that's eight years ago, though, thankfully. Mm -hmm. And I'm still figuring it out. And so I like to find somebody who I would say is doing one thing right. So there's no, no pressure on you to be all-knowing no i'm more insulted that it only looks like i'm getting one thing right that's my year. at least one at least <laughs> i'm one. teasing I'm, that was a joke i um yeah cool i'm not i wasn't drunk and uh stoned or high or whatever you said but i i was in the christian bubble until i was 28 so i when i pitched crashing for example i said it's someone going through their 20s in their 30s that was one of the ideas. So you're going through a similar thing. Yeah. You're trying to figure out what most people figured out in their 20s. Like Kumail um, roasted me, the comedian roasted me that like all of my existential crises and stuff like were so new to me when I was 28. And he was like, yeah, we did all of this when we were in college. Like <laughs> he was just like ahead. Yeah. So I relate to you. That's all I wanted to say. So I'd like to start with a small question. Can I use your bathroom? It, well, yeah, that was the first small question. Uh, but the second small question that you probably haven't ever spent time asking is, who are you? Who am I? Yeah. That's not a small question. No, that's a it's short not. question. No. Is that what you mean? <laughs> like it's only three words. I, that's the most important question in the world. And I, my whole life, people have been saying that's the most important question in the world. And unfortunately, I feel like in the West and just in modern society, we've misinterpreted the point of that question. I, I address this a little bit in my book. I only say that so people know that I know that I'm repeating myself. It's really, I'm just like, just so you know, I know I've said this before, but I thought like figuring out who you were meant um, laying out all your preferences and your likes, your dislikes, your attractions, your aversions. I, I am a vegetarian or I am a Red Sox fan or I am a I like the first two Christopher Nolan Batman movies like I thought that's what they meant as if when you die you'll have a satisfaction like everyone knew how I took my coffee like you didn't not explore your psyche and the workings of your brain and your DNA and your personality and how you were raised 
And I think as an artist, that is really important work is to figure out who I would say the small you is, like the story of Ben or the story of Pete, like who is that? I'm not saying that's not valid, but that is not what I mean when I say the most important question is to ask who are you? Like I think of it every time I go on Netflix, it says, who's watching Netflix? You have to pick an account and I'm like, you're goddamn right, who's watching Netflix? So now I would say that figuring out who or what is it that's observing your patterns, that you take those patterns, that data, and uh, construct an identity out of them. Uh, we think the identity is who we are, but I think it's actually the observing presence that's looking at that data and reporting. Does that make sense? Yeah, like out-of-body security camera looking or... No, inner body security camera. From within, inner body. From within. I mean, I suppose you could, it's it's really relative to say whether it's outside or inside, but I I think that's sort of um, dealer's choice. How do you want to symbolize it or materialize it is really up to you. What story do you want to tell? But the, the fact of the matter is when we're quiet and we're still, we still exist. And that, you know, Eckhart Tolle, I got this from him. He's, he's saying like, the point of all spirituality is to realize that you are not any of these things that are just falling away. So you mentioned that you used to be a drunk and a drug user. And yet here, you're still here, but you don't identify as that anymore. Those behaviors have changed. But what doesn't change? That is the whole point. That is what Jesus is talking about when he's saying eternal life. What is the part of you that is a part of the game? Like not a part, but a part, a part non-part of the game. That is the answer to who are we. Now, I don't have the answer because words can only get so close, but my, my whole life is trying to experience my life from a place of being, of untouched, unborn, undying being, because that's where I found joy to be, satisfaction to be, um, and truth to be. Everything else is just a story. Everything else is just ice cream on the beach. Like I'm happy because I'm eating ice cream on the beach. We all know ice cream goes away, the sun goes down, the beach gets cold. It's a fucking stupid game to try. And I'm not addicted to drugs, but I have been addicted to a lot of things. I do consider myself addicted to a lot of things like bread, pizza, sweets. All these things are very tempting to me. So it's very attracting. That those, those flaws or whatever you want to call them, those bumps, led me on a more meaningful exploration of who is it that's watching this fumbling, bumbling creature? that's behind the scenes going like, wow, Ben is a drug addict. You know what I mean? Like, what, what is that part of me? And can I sit in that part? Of yeah. course, for a second I was you, and then I went back to me, so that was unclear. Because <laughs> I wasn't saying Ben, I was saying as Ben, Ben notices that he's a drug addict. Pete notices that he's a Sam alcoholic or whatever. Am I Ben? Yeah. Okay. Got you're you're going to be Ben in this one. I'm, I'm okay with that. Is that fine? Yeah, I'm all right with that. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to jump all sorts of names. <laughs> That's my point. It doesn't matter what we yeah. call ourselves. I was atheist for a while, uh, especially when I first got sober. Just I, I grew up Christian as well as you, and mm-hmm. I was so spiritual when I was high. So spiritual because that makes sense. chaos was happening, and I needed, all, I needed things to be ordained yeah. by a higher power and for my protection to be assured like known because i was putting myself in danger all the time and when things that's why you were spiritual uh, yeah i mean because the drugs were chaotic because the drug life was chaotic oh so it's sort of like no atheists and foxholes sort of thing kind of like there was this guy well i was raised with that imagery right so it was very comfortable for me uh to talk to god as i 
understood him at the time. And there was this guy, Randy, who used to hook me up with meth. And he would point his gun at me every time he left the, left the house. It was like this funny little thing he would do. Be like, pimping ain't easy when you're white and greasy. Uh-huh. I don't pop my color. I pop my cuff. You know, and he'd point a gun at you. And it was all fun and games. Do we owe him royalties for saying that little poem? We might. We yeah, might. you might not want to say that. I'm not that. sure if he's still around. He wasn't doing so well. Yeah. Uh, physically, his body was breaking down. Hmm. But anyway, so... Uh, that riff got real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's not a lot of really funny... You were like, yes, and yeah. he's and dead. He might be. <laughs> yeah, one time I tried to rescue one of his prostitutes, who was like young and probably shouldn't be prostituting herself, at least in my eyes. Right. And um, that didn't go well. You tried to rescue her, yeah. not from like captors, but from, from him. her life. From him. Right. So she had family up north. I was driving her up north. She ended up stealing the car. It's, it's such a long story. Wow. Yeah. And then I needed him to go fish her back to bring the car back. It was very awkward. So you sold her out to get your car back? I, I guess so. Yeah. It's a bad story. <laughs> it's a really bad story. <laughs> yeah. like, I, I started a podcast for yeah. self aggrandizing, like self serving. Yeah. You're just like, no, I'm just going to tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I admire it. It's yeah. Good. Well, it was like, you know, it was very awkward. I had to be like, hey, I wasn't thrilled what what she was doing for you. Yeah. And so I wanted to, I'm like. Oh, you had to tell him. I Yeah. Yeah. I had to tell him what was going on. Because he didn't notice that she had gone missing. No. And then uh, he had like a little parental moment where he laughed. He's like, oh, you remind me of myself. Don't ever do that again. And then pointed his gun at you with a little poem. Yeah, well, when he left. It was when he left the room. Of course, because that's his <laughs> yeah. bit. That's his bit. Oh, my God. So that's very interesting to me. I, when you said that you were into God because of drugs, something that I never wanted... So I worked with Artie Lang, and I never wanted to ask him if he felt... Um, if doing heroin felt divine, because I didn't want to give him another reason to enjoy it. Not that that's how it works. It's a little narcissistic on my part. Like, I'm going to give him another framework to enjoy his addiction. Even It's not how it works. But I didn't want to make it seem like I thought it was cool in any way. Um, but I thought you were saying that when you were high, you felt one with the universe or something. You were saying you needed backup. I needed backup. And I was a very religious kid. Mm-hmm. You know, you've met my mom and she's very hippy-dippy. So it was a hippy-dippy christianity she raised you in this way yes yeah yeah i went to church i taught some sunday school it's interesting because i'm always like we're holding out we have a daughter and we love your mom and her work and i i would say that her writing and the way that she talks about faith has given us hope that we're like maybe there's a way to raise our kids (laughs) sort of in it but not too in it to fuck them up but you got a little bit fucked up I got fucked up, but definitely not because of church. Oh, okay. Yeah, definitely not because of church. And my son goes to church, hmm. and I'm not a Christian. Mm-hmm. So he'll come home and talk about God in heaven, and then I will explain that not everybody believes that. Okay, well. And that at times I haven't believed that, and that, I mean, I actually don't know if I believe in an afterlife, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I, I want him to not count on an afterlife. I think that's a weird gamble. You know? Yeah, it's funny. You actually catch a lot of people that do believe in an afterlife, whether or not they admit that, also believe what you're saying. Yeah. So I think you're just being very honest, and I think that's lovely, because there are so many people that 
might believe that they go to a better place, but you know, they almost get in a car accident. They sure do kick into a, there's a great Simpsons joke where Maud Flanders almost dies. And she went, I almost died and went to eternal paradise. Nettie, it was awful. And it's like, that's, that's the paradox. That's the, the humor of the Christian predicament is like, we sure are acting like people that are very clinging to this world, even though, you know, money, put the money where your mouth is, you should kind of want to die. Right. <laughs> right. The church at some point, way after Jesus had to make uh, killing yourself in the sake of martyrdom a sin. That's why yeah, that, suicide became a sin, right? It must be. Yeah. It has to be. Because people were like... But martyrdom might have been like the best way out, because it was like death with a triple guarantee. Triple. I spent so much of my life looking for those triple... I, I, again, in my book, I make this joke where I would fill out the vis- visitor registration card at my church every Sunday, because I wanted there to be a paper trail that I was going to church. I loved that part. Isn't it? Oh, yeah. you read it. I didn't know. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm touched. But that, that's that attitude is like, how can I really make sure I'm going to heaven? Because that's how the game was laid out to me. Not who are you really, which is what I hear Jesus saying, but more like you are this small, separate self, small self. You are the drug fake person, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> and what's going to happen to this fake person, Ben, when Ben dies, that is the, I'm going to say, the shitty narrative that I was sold, which is not what I hear in the words of Christ or any right. great teacher. And by the way, whether or not, I just love saying this, who cares what you believe? I just can't get that out enough. I don't mean that to put that down. But if you say, I'm not a Christian, or I don't believe in heaven, or I don't believe in God, I'm like, it doesn't matter. Like, we put so much weight in what we believe and beliefs are just thoughts that we have repetitively and they change you used to believe smoking meth was a good saturday you know what i'm saying yeah i'm saying what is behind the belief and that is a thoughtless place and that is a um very impossible to talk about place very difficult to talk about place that's where the juice is but we've gotten so caught up in like, well, do you believe in a literal six-day creation? Do you believe in a physical heaven and hell? Do you believe in a virgin birth of sinless life, physical death and resurrection? We've turned it into membership, certainty worship, um, belonging to a group. And that's what most people are satisfied with. That's why we have to we have to separate and say, like, I'm into mysticism. I'm not, I don't consider myself a Christian either. I'm very down with what Christ is saying, and I'm into the Christian mystics. But the mystics are the ones that are going like, look, we don't know. Anybody that says they know is selling you something. But let's all dance. Let's dance in the light of the fire that, of right. this burning world. Yeah, I agree. Like, I, my, If I was to believe in an omnipotent God, I don't see why a good atheist wouldn't get the same goods as a good Christian. Right. Yeah, if they cares? if they lived well. Well, Richard Ward says we've made a God that's like us instead of the other way around. And obviously the God that I see in reality supports, loves, feeds. I'm not talking about makes everything go their way. There's a whole lot of suffering, but I'm just saying the sun and the rain falls on thorns and it falls on weeds and it falls on flowers and there's diversity and there's all this stuff. But we've turned it into us. And what are we? We're scared, we're clans. We're in and out. We're us and them. We're winners and losers. We're binary. So we've made a God that is scared and angry and kicks ass but and we, hates our enemies, just like us. Don't you think it's it's a fictionalized version of us with monotheistic religions? Well, I think it's a fictionalized version of God, but that is, that is kind of how we 
a lot of us can be deep down is yeah. scared and go like, well, look at how much, like the people that upset me are often the people that threaten who I think I am. So if I'm a comedian and somebody um, accuses me of stealing a joke or something, that like really gets my goat, right? Because they're like challenging the foundations of who I am. I'm like, I, I, even though I know it's not true, I'll be like, I, uh, you know, and that hasn't even happened. That's just like a, f- a fake example. It's like a fear. Like whenever somebody's coming at who it is, I really think I am. That's why I think comedy and roasting, especially like making fun of, you know what a roast is, tearing people down, can be really important spiritual work because it's it's burning, it's burning man. Yeah. It's, burn, it's lighting on fire the false self. And if I if I have somebody make fun of my my strange soft body or my loud voice or my propensity to interrupt or this or that, and I can laugh at that, that's liberation. And that's what I think the spiritual game is about. Because who am I really? It's not that. So let's make fun of it. I think churches, if they could, would get a lot of juice out of roasting their pastors, roasting their elders, roasting the choir, roasting the choir director. But you never would. It's the last place you would. Right. Because it's it's a false... I, 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 I'm not saying all churches... I have a lot of love for that. I know that it can be very powerful for people, but it's the last place you could go up and make fun of the pastor. And that's a, that's idolatry. It's like, this is a special person. We don't make fun of him. Well, I've always loved <laughs> about polytheistic religions that they're so allowed to be human because they're not one, Which ones? ones with multiple gods, right? Uh-huh. Because they're, you know, you can have the bravest of warrior who's also a liar Yeah, and like, you know, because they don't have to be the one perfect That's right. thing. Yeah. And so my... It used to be so goofy to me, and now I'm like, yeah. yeah. My trouble with the um, per- perfect single force in the universe, the one creator that is all-knowing and, and all that, is that you get on this, uh, like, just for me, like, I think one of the most things I've struggled with the most is that you are innately a sinner. So then you, you get, you just hop onto this hamster wheel of shame in a way. Well, that, that's, well, it's marketing. Yeah. Right. There's a, we set up a heaven hell ticking. We set up heaven and hell. So that's just something that somebody is proposing. You know, they, they're not dead. And then they go, well, how do we put some urgency on it? Well, you're going to die. So th- that's the same thing. It's like Coke, you're going to be thirsty. You know what I mean? Christianity, you're going to die. And then, so you got to put an engine to it and then you're going to have one of these choices. So you better believe and you got to do this to, to be in. That's, that's, you know, basic sales. I'd like to point out, by the way, I do not believe God is all knowing. God is knowing. God is what knowing is. When you know, when you are consciously aware of something, that is godliness in you. God is being God is isness. So God is not somewhere else knowing everything. God is knowing. <laughs> when you know something, that is godly. You are using the mechanism of consciousness, which is God, which is being. Let's not even say God, is the mystery. But whenever we we, we get into Greek mythology, basically, when we talk about God being all-knowing, we're talking about Zeus. That's why we're talking about an old man with a beard in the sky. It's motherfucking Zeus that predates Christianity, but that is the Western God, <laughs> is Zeus. Zeus is a weird man, though. I, Zeus I'm not was talking a about rapist. the story of Zeus. Oh, okay. I'm not telling, I'm saying the image of Zeus. Oh, got it, yeah. It's not the Christian image. The, the God in the Bible says, I am that I am. He says, I am, I am. He's the first metaphor for amness. So whenever we say, 
any debate about God that starts with, well, he's all powerful and he's all knowing, why does this happen? I'm like, he's not all powerful in the way that Dwayne the Rock Johnson is all powerful in an action movie. That's a flawed way of looking at it. He is power. He is enlightenment. It is everything. It is suffering. That's in the Bible. I make suffering. I create light. I create darkness. God is isness. When it's happening, it is an expression of this, of the undulating fountain that we are all a part of, of energy, of conflicting energy, swirling. That's it. There's not... There's not something, Zeus, outside of it, watching it going, good, Ben is good. <laughs> what the fuck? It's this. It's this. I'm not saying there aren't unbel- infinite dimensions. There's a world where we're both holding giraffe dicks and it's raining sprinkles. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm, I'm open to lots of potentials of different realities because that's what we're in. But those realities are also this. If it is, it's this. And if it's this, that is what I believe God to be. God is this. Yeah. Look at this spider. That's yeah. There is a, a nice. It's a baby spider though. Which means it's mama somewhere. Yeah. Making that's, sure we don't kill it. Yeah, I'm not even gonna comment on that last. That's like a chew on this kind of. Which one? Your last talk about the is. Yeah. I'm gonna think about that for a while. To a lot of you know, but it is something different to everyone, right? And to every Christian, it, it's it's something different. Some of my favorite people are my Christian friends who really teach me about kindness and the goodness. That's one of the things that I've fallen deeply in love with who you are is that you've managed to hang on to a lot of that almost childlike goodness and innocence where you're not so jaded. And that's, that's amazing to me because I've been very cynical and very jaded for probably a majority of my life hmm. where that was just the safe place to kind of be the shit slinger. Yeah. It served you. Yeah. It served me. And I wanted to talk about your childhood, your upbringing with Christianity, because it, it shaped, it shaped a lot of the next kind of actions that would happen in your life. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, there was an element of you know, what I call the unholy Trinity, which is fear, guilt, and shame. Right. And those are everywhere. Some of my favorite activists will use those tactics. And I go, oh man, I can't, mm-hmm. I'm not even listening to that because you're, you're using the same destructive forces. Well, you would like Eckhart yeah. Tolle's, like anytime you're waging war on something, the war on drugs, even the war on a disease, he's like, you're feeding, it's a, it's a snake eating its own tail situation. It's like, there, there has to be another way. That's why it's always the question of like, I'm not really, it, you, it used to, it would get me off if somebody was like, you seem so good and innocent. And I'm now I'm just like, that's just show business. And you were, I'm not saying that's not how I am. I'm saying that's not how you were either. You weren't, who are you really is what I'm saying. I, this is my biggest point. People are always like, I talk to them about Jesus or anybody, Buddha. And they all seem to think that like Jesus just came to tell us to be good or to be sweet or to have wonder or to be in touch with the miracle, or be positive. I'm like, you really think they killed a dude or wrote a text that withstanded 2,000 years because he went around saying, be good? There were farmers and regular folk that were like, be good. What is this? This is a crazy miracle. Stay grateful. Stay positive. Nobody was out killing them. Nobody crucified them. Jesus came and said, wake up, dummies. This isn't real. Power is fake. Blessed be the poor. 
Blessed be the meek. Fuck Caesar. Fuck your family. I'm sorry, but read the Bible. Jesus does not give a fuck about your family. And he doesn't give a fuck about your church. And he doesn't care about power structures and holy offerings and special hats and robes. He's saying the kingdom of heaven is here. That's why you kill a guy. If you take the juice out of the game that's paying people and getting them on vacation and giving them fancier food and better houses, when you start threatening that system because a lot of poor people are starting to wake up and that's sort of building a revolution, that's why you kill somebody. So all of this, like, I appreciate that you think I'm sweet and positive. Dude, a lot of that's my temperament. A lot of that's like my DNA. It's my personality. And it's the wrong thing to worship. The thing to worship is looking out your eyes right now. It's it's closer than it could possibly be to you right now. Well, I consider myself the seven-year-old boy who was so sweet and really wanted the whole classroom to behave yeah. in a way that made it fair. And I, I keep a photo of myself on my desk. And on the picture frame, it says, the boy who believed. Mm. And so I am also that. But I did, I did take a turn. I mean, you made it definitely longer than me, hanging on to some of that, which I, I really look at little kids and I feel like, wow, you guys really got it. Yeah. Like you guys are closer to it. We agree on that. Yeah, than I am. And so that, that it, the reason why I will go, I have a button that I push in my office and it has a little recorded message of myself. It says, pick up the photo and look into that kid's eyes. That is the kid who believed he could build spaceships that would go into outer space and believed that he could make a dent in the world and on and on and on. And so I, I do, you know, really value that. I have a 10-year-old and, um, you know, he he teaches me a lot. Yeah, just recently he's been very concerned about eating meat. And so first he said... Eating you? Eating meat. Oh. And so he, at first he said dad i can't eat cows you know and i said okay i get it and then he goes i can't eat lambs or pigs either and i'm like okay that makes sense you know cows are very much like dogs you know if you watch them in the springtime they jump like dogs and have fun can't wait to get on the grass and pigs are smart and i said i get it i totally get it uh i'll do that with you and then the next week he said dad i don't want to eat birds either Mm -hmm. and i instantly just went to some really crazy like you have to you you know because i'm worried about vegan kids i just have a fear about it and i was perceiving that that's where he's going with this and that that would mean that he's not going to develop right and so you know all these thoughts and he starts crying and i just have this moment of clarity where i'm like you are trying to force a a little kid into eating animal carcass Mm -hmm. let's find a way like, and so I had to apologize and I have to apologize to him often and be like, you know what? I was wrong. I was super wrong. And, um, we're going to find a way to make, make it work. But back to your, your childhood, I would love if you could tell our listeners, it is in your book, but the, the, the framework that was, that was built for you with your, your Christian upbringing. Like, what was I taught? Yeah. What were you taught and what, did, what did you believe and. How well, some of that would be turned on its head down the road. I mean, I guess it sort of starts with what we're talking about, which is a, a desire to be a good and sweet boy. And that came from growing up in my family, there being a lot of um, tension 
and then realizing that I could kind of cut off at the pass an oncoming fight by being sweet or being nice or being funny or being entertaining um, or agreeing, just being like amenable. <laughs> like what I, I said to my dad, I was like, why don't we just do what mom says? Like when I do what mom says, everything goes fine. You come home and he asserts his will that a lot of people, not just men, but a lot of men in particular have this real nobody tells me what to do thing that I didn't really understand. I was like, but if you do what she tells you to do, like don't put your, you know, dirty pants here or whatever it might be, then we have a better time. So why don't you just you know, just give in? She's the leader. <laughs> like make her the leader. But my dad was like, I'm the leader. I was like, well, this isn't going to work. There's two leaders. <laughs> we need to have one leader. So I was very sweet and tried to be very sweet to both of them. And then the church came along and here's this system that really rewards and encourages being sweet. And I already was sweet. So I was like, I can thrive here and I can also earn more points with my family and my mother and the, and the way that people see me by being a good church person. So I got a lot out of going to church that I liked. Um, everybody there was very nice. Um, for the most part, I mean, there's some jerks everywhere, but that's mostly just the other kids would might might be a jerk from time to time. But for the most part, the grownups were very, very nice, very polite, and very kind. Um, I, I wouldn't say I got a deep, what I would consider a spiritual feeling, <laughs> but I did get like a, it's safe here, and that's all I needed. So like, I appreciated that. And then unfortunately, uh, the stuff that kind of came through with all of that nice stuff that I was benefiting from was the concept of, of hell was the concept that everybody that doesn't believe what we believe is going to be tortured. Um, not just killed, but like tortured forever. So a never ending Holocaust basically. So the worst things that we can think of that, but even worse, cause it's like supernatural and forever. So there's no learning your lesson. There's no redemption. It's over. The behavior that you exhibited in a finite amount of time, which could be, according to the church, I think it's like 12 years is the age of accountability. So it's like you could be on earth for 12 years and then you're tortured for um, for infinity because, and not even because you were a bad person, but because you didn't pledge your allegiance to my God. So that all, that's a heavy burden. <laughs> So I, I was one of those kids that you tell me something. I'm still sort of this way. You tell me something. I'm sort of like, you only have to tell me once kind of guy. And I believe you. And I believe you. Yeah. yeah I tried to make that point in the book over and over as I was like, these are grownups. They tell us how to stay safe on roller coasters. They tell us how don't eat the spicy pepper at the bottom of the Chinese food. Like they, they tell us what to do. They tell us to brush our teeth. They tell us to go to bed. They have khakis and keys and money why wouldn't I believe them when they said like, look, there's a magic book and it told us this and I'm already so confused. We're all, we're all, if we're being honest, so confused that we're here. It's such a conundrum. It's such a mystery. So we're a little bit afraid. And then somebody comes and says, don't worry. You know, you can read the back of the top of the box, like the monopoly and here's the rules. And the rules are very simple. And I really took it hook, line, and sinker. I was like, this life is a waiting room. It's just a test. It just is be good and believe, die and go to paradise. I never really bothered with thinking like, well, what is paradise? We're just in, in 
pleasure forever. Like even the feeling of an orgasm forever would just become your new normal. I wasn't even thinking. Or horrible. Or it would be horrible. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, people would always be like, oh, it's praising God all day. I'm like, that sounds horrible. They're like, it's like church. It's like a long church service. I was like, yeah, I'm pretending to like this. (laughs) Like That's what I would think. Um, So I appreciated the creation story. I appreciated the ethics, the loving your neighbor as yourself and all that. And I liked how these people were because they were kind. And for the most part, they were patient and they were silly and fun because we're not doing drugs and we're not drinking. You know, we're the ones that are going on water slides, you know, even though we're 15, everybody else is like going out smoking cigarettes or whatever. We're going to like a lock-in and drinking a lot of root beer. I kind of enjoyed the incubation that the church gave me. It sort of prevented me. I smoked pot for the first time when I was 28. Wow. And I'm like, I think if I had smoked pot when I was 12, I don't know what I'd be doing right now. I'm a little bit weird and conservative in that way because just because I have an addict's personality that I'm like, if you were like, instead of um, doing something that scares you, an open mic and trying comedy and then getting a good feeling, just um, eat this pill and get a good feeling. I'd be like, well, this is faster. I'll just do this, you know? So I'm glad that the church sort of kept me square. And then I had other comedy heroes like Seinfeld. And I know he turned out to be a, a terrible person, but Cosby was a was an image. I thought he was a good person. So that served me. I thought there were like nice guys in comedy. Um, and there are, just not him. So I got a lot of good out of the church. It's also where I first started doing stand-up because everybody was nice and would laugh. I, I would just do impressions and... Um, stories and stuff uh, at retreats. And then, you know, the long story short is I got married when I was 22 and then my wife left me when I was 28. And that was when it all started to fall apart because I didn't really know this, but clearly I believed that because I was with God, um, things would go my way. And that that's a really narcissistic, crazy narcissistic thought. But one that a lot of us fall into. Most of us have. Yeah. Especially when your life is going well. My wife leaving me was basically the first really bad thing that ever happened to me. So I had 28 uninterrupted years of just kind of whistling down the sidewalk. And then, I've said this before, but it was like I was paying protection money to God, and God was like the mafia, but still someone burned down my bakery. And I was like, well, why am I paying the mafia God if he can't even protect my bakery? So that's when I became, um, I lost my faith. Everybody I knew that was an, was an atheist anyway. I had no Christian friends. I had no spiritual friends. So it was very easy for me to, basically, my atheism was like I stopped thinking about it. It wasn't that I went, like a, a good, thoughtful atheist will go into the, the ideology of atheism and like embody it and understand it. I just used the, that as a way of not thinking about it. I didn't want to talk about it or think about it. It was too overwhelming. So I had a good couple years. Didn't make sense with what, what it, had happened. Also everything, it didn't make sense. And it also gave me a green light to let the doubts that I had been having the whole time in. I was keeping them at bay, but like doubts, like you're telling me my gay friends are going to hell. You're telling me my Jewish friends are going to hell. You're telling me that everyone that, I'm, I'm sorry to keep mentioning the Holocaust, but it's a big thing, obviously. You're telling me everyone that died in the Holocaust went to hell. Like, can we just start with that? Like, that's what you're telling me is going on here? Or all those examples that are in my book as well, that someone who lives a, a decent life but never found Christ falls off a cliff. A monk falls off a cliff. Like, what are we doing here? So I let those doubts in, and I got to sort of let it all go 
which is Jesus says you have to lose your your life to find it. I sort of found that you had to lose your faith to find it. I had to like kind of clean out the room um, because it was all this inherited furniture before I could start building my own furniture and, and assembling it in a way that made me experience, not just think, but experience freedom and liberation and peace and joy and patience. And not because I was trying to experience those things, but because when I move my furniture in this way and see the world fundamentally from this place, those are the fruits of that sort of arrangement. Instead of your unholy trinity, instead of walking around angry and secretly believing everyone's going to hell, it's a shitty fucking way. When someone says they're the way, the truth, and the life, way, truth, life, and then we turn that into walking around and going like pitying people that don't go to our church? I don't I don't know what happened. <laughs> One of uh, psychologists I was listening to, I wish I could cite him, but he was talking about PTSD. And he was saying a traumatic event is anything that shatters your blueprint of reality. Hmm. And that really let me start realizing how much trauma I had been through. Because it's normally just like, ah, well, people are doing worse, right? Hmm. There's people suffering way worse than me. And who I've seen way worse than me and that, you know, this isn't trauma, but I had a similar situation, you know, where I was with somebody and it was, you know, it seemed for me, I had been in a really bad contentious relationship with my son's mom. And, um, when that finally ended, there was this big healing period. It was not healthy and it really left me with some scars. Mm-hmm. And then there was this redemptive redemption moment where I met this woman who I fell deeply in love with and we had this four-year relationship and it ended with um, just horrible, you know, gut-wrenching, suicidal heartbreak. And it was similar in a way to you to where I was left for a man. And the next day she was with this man and they're still together. So good on her for jumping ship and it working out. But um, I kind of feel the same way, you know, I think that all the time. I'm like, yeah, you took a risk and it paid out. I I say it every chance I can. I really wish her the best. And I'm there's that Bob Dylan line, I always have respected her in doing what she did and getting free. It's in if you say or if you see her say hello. Uh and I I love that line. It took me a long way to get there. So good for you for getting there too. That's great. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me it was like she got out of the the torture chamber she was in where, you know, it was like we were so close to being a perfect relationship, but you should be a little bit more assertive. And then you should, you know, you want to be a professional tattoo artist. You need to draw every day. So I'd buy like a drawing drafting desk and be like, here, sit down. And we're going to go to a different tattoo parlor every week and just trying to control and manage. And it's like a tree bending over. Mm. And it felt like when she left, it was really like, she wanted to be a tattoo artist. Yeah. And it felt like when she left, it was really that tree like a cartoon snapping back into the shape it's supposed to be in. Yeah. But it left me, just completely destroyed because I had created the whole future of what we would be. Mm. And I had the visions that I'm sure you had where you're now an old couple, right? And all of a sudden you're a man without a future, right? Betty, I mean, I hear the suffering, can't, can't you hear the, su- the, the suffering that we give ourselves from not being in the present? You yeah. just said it. You just said it. We buy into these stories. You can see it in big examples. You can see it in little examples. A flight is delayed and, and we start suffering because we're thinking about the future that we're supposed to have, 
instead of that's why I'm like, it doesn't really matter. It, it seems like you're benefiting psychologically from a lot of structure and photos of yourself as a child. And I think that's beautiful. We need to build lives that help us get to a place where we are comfortable and served enough to explore deep spiritual ideas. And so like my marriage, for example, is the product of discernment and patience and, you know, using my head going like, I think this is a using, you know, I was comparing, I was like, can I see this working? So I had to project myself into the future as well. And then when, when you're in that, you can be in the present and let it go, but you need to get there first. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. So I'm sort of coming at you from a place where I'm like, yeah, nothing's wrong. Be in the moment, be in the moment. She left, but that thing didn't really exist. And these infatuations and wanting somebody to be a thing. And we create so much suffering. <laughs> we do. And, you know, I love some of the non-dualists, like non-duality. I had Byron Katie on. She helped me. Like I was in a heartbreak when we she, we talked and me leaving my narrative helped me. Yeah. But at the same time, I also love narrative, you know, and some of my highest highs were from uh, the story I wrote about something, you know, in my own life to make it. Well, that's why the, sense. the and, dark night of the soul. Is and like, some of the yeah. lowest lows are also caused by narrative, you know? Well, that's why we don't yeah. want to do it. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's why Jesus calls it death. You know, you have to lose your life to find it. That's what he's talking about. Like if it was just letting go of frustration and depression and sadness, would all want it, would sign up for that. But in order to do that, the paradox is you also have to let go of really believing in your specialness and your thrivingness. And your, that's why one of the things that's helpful for me in having the successes that I've had is that I can see that they they too are on fire, that it's all on fire. And there's a real freedom in going, none of this is, that's, that's why I'm saying like, where are you if it's not this rushing river of emotions and thoughts and situations and successes and failures? If all of that is swirling past you in a river of fire, who are you? It can't be those things. Those things keep going away, and yet you remain. You're always here watching those things. There was a billboard for crashing the TV show that I did, and I would pass it on the freeway. I'd have to drive to work, and I would pass it almost every day. And you'd have a little moment where you'd just be like, oh, that's cool. That's me on a billboard. That's fun. And then one day I was driving to work, and it had been taken down, and it was a, an ad for AT&T or something, and it said, four free cell phones. That is... That's the giggle of the universe. It goes, if you want to believe that being on a billboard is special, um, I'm going to show you that you're for free cell phones. <laughs> so the real joy is sort of in that surrender of letting it go and going like, it's all like sort of with your son, it's okay. We'll figure it out because what matters isn't, uh, you might think it's about your son's prote protein intake, and at a certain point that might be interesting to look at or whatever. But it's really about how how can we share the here and now together? How do how will we make each other feel? How free can we be together? By the way, I'm a vegan. I don't know if you know that. Your son will be fine. Yeah. No, I knew I knew you were like close to at the very least. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a bad vegan, but I had a, a bite of milk chocolate today. That's a good example. But like, there you. 
I know. But that's sort of my point is that I'm trying to get people to whatever their beliefs are, even when they're right. I think veganism is right. And still I will, I had a bite of a grilled cheese sandwich yesterday. Like these, these are bites and little things, but like, I think it's very powerful and I wish I could see more people. This is a weird thing to say, being less rooted in their beliefs, even when you think they're right. I wish we could see more of that. I see people, I don't want to talk about politics, but I see people pushing people into stereotypes. You're a Nazi and you're a libtard. <laughs> and then we all start acting like those things instead of going like, can't we be vegans that occasionally eat cookies? Can't we be liberals that occasionally understand this policy or that policy or this idea? And can't we be conservatives that occasionally go like, yeah, you're right. I, I, I am pro-gun. I think that's my right. And maybe we should make it so it's not so easy for these people to get an assault rifle. You know what I mean? Those are vegans eating cookies. Well, I yeah, think we I should be vegans, eating, vegans cookies. eating cookies. I Me listen too. to, for every hour of liberal media, I watch an hour of conservative media. Yeah. And it's really, hell. I was just so toxic. I was so full of hate, right, for the other side. And I never, I will explicitly bleep out if you mention your political affiliation. Because it gets in the way. I right? don't have one, so. Right, but it, it gets in the way. <laughs> I guess I do, yeah. but. And so I've had political writers and I have to go, I want them to hear you, not hear what you vote for and then turn it off. Dude, you're right. so right. Yeah. And that's why veganism has been interesting for me. You should believe veganism. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you shouldn't because we're having a good conversation about it. Yeah. But like when I say that, it gives people a, a stance. It gives me a stance. It makes me a thing. And vegans are annoying for their own things. Um, we're not those things. We are the we are the presence observing those things. And when we're in that, that's what namaste means. When I'm in that quiet place and you're in that quiet place, we're the same thing. So we should be able to, no matter what we're talking about, I think it was Rumi or Kabir, do what you have to do with another person. Just don't put them out of your heart. Your heart is where you really are. So yeah, debate, chide, resist, rebel, march, all that stuff. But behind it, there should be a cosmic giggle. And there should be a, there, as Ramdas says, there's no one in the other boat. We're in, you're in a boat in a in a foggy lake, and you bump into another boat, and you start yelling, "Look where you look where you're going, you idiot!" The fog clears, and there's no one in the other boat. It's just us. I'm just talking to myself. I'm glad you're over there. What fun! What a fun game! What a fun dance! I wouldn't have it any other way. Clearly, <laughs> clearly, it's what's happening. Yeah. This is what I, this is what we want to do. This is how we learn. This is how we play. Great. But uh, don't get lost in it. That's that's what Christ is about with the in the world, not of the world stuff. So, but can we talk about the, the path to healing and your spiritual journey that came from the the pain and the, and the trauma and the gut wrench? Because you certainly didn't feel the way you feel now yeah. in the moment. I mean, you described it as being uh, a cow like brought to the slaughterhouse, right? Or like a, I don't know if that was an exact analogy, but where your wife at the time sets up this dinner to tell you that, yeah, you know, the that she's cheating on you, essentially, that she's cheating on you and that you deserve better, but at the same time, you're right. just... She did regret not doing it in a reverse order. Like she should have left me and then gone with the other guy. She regretted that. Um, so I admired that. But she did what she needed to do, Bob Dylan. She did. She that's how she needed to do. Sometimes you have to cheat because you don't have the heart or the courage 
to break up with somebody before you test drive somebody else. <laughs> so she did what she had to do. Um, but yeah, so you, it, I lost my faith. I was, uh, a little bit jilted and burnt from it, but mostly like I used it as an excuse to think thoughts that I never felt safe thinking like there's no God. Um, I basically, I make a joke in the book that like a Christian on a bender is just a regular person. Like I would go out and stay at a bar until 2 a.m. and everybody was still there. I was like, are you guys all on benders? Like what's going on here? Like turns out that's not a bender. That's just a Saturday night in Manhattan. But I would start doing these things. Not so much that my God had left, but it was my God and my wife. I didn't have anyone to go home to. So suddenly I was with the people. It's really weird, but that's when I made like a lot of great friends because I sort of needed friends. I Maybe like you, I had gotten good at using people like, oh, this person can plug me into this or that or that. And that can be a pitfall of my job is because everybody I know is a comedian. So we're all sort of like helping each other, but we're also friends, but we're also like work friends. It's like weird. But then all of a sudden I was in like in the hole. I, I, I had a broken heart. I had a confused brain and, I, and that's when I made a lot of my best friends because I needed a friend and that was a really beautiful time. And then I started having, you know, sex with people I wasn't married to, not the way you see in movies where you just go out and start having a lot of sex. I needed a lot of love and a lot of safety and a lot of coddling, quite frankly, to, to feel comfortable because I had just been left by somebody in a sexual way. She had cheated on me. So I, I wasn't ready to just like have sex with anybody. Right. The first girl that I dated, we dated for an absurdly long time before we had sex. <laughs> like looking back after I got more comfortable sexually, I was like, it's crazy that I didn't have sex with that person or try to at least make out. I, I don't mean try, like I'm trapping them. I just mean like be open. I didn't even consider making out with this person. I was just like, well, that's crazy. I just met her. But looking back, I'm like, well, if I had been in a more confident place, I would have looked for signals that she was trying to hook up. Um, anyway, that was a little bit of an aside. I remember that. I, I was having lots of casual sex because, you know, also my ex is having lots of sex with yeah. her new partner. And so yeah. I'm just trying to fill that space. Yeah. But I remember that the sex wasn't it, that I would be like, can you stay? Yeah, I can, wanted intimacy. Can you read next to me? Can we yeah. read next to each other? I tried to communicate that on Crashing was that there's a scene where my character um, is hung over and he's kind of dizzy and he sits down to pee and he leaves the door open. This is the first time that he has sex with somebody after his, uh, I think, after his ex-wife. And I was trying to show that sometimes married people or people that are coming out of a long relationship are far more comfortable with intimacy and they're actually craving intimacy. I want to pee while you're brushing your teeth more than I want to like just have sex. Oh, we got the gardener. I hope that's okay. He'll only be a minute. Okay. Doesn't take too long. He's weed whacking. He's whacking those weeds. Uh, but we can keep going. I, I, when my files go really awry, I send it to this sound engineer friend of mine. Oh. And sometimes you can isolate ooh. that frequency. Let's give it to him wild. There it is. I feel Look like for that. Yeah, I feel like uh, I've given it, given him worse files. <laughs> I think that's fine. If it's not bothering me, I'm pretty sound sensitive. I think your listeners will be fine. But so anyway, I I started 
doubting. I started drinking. I started having sex. And I realized that I wasn't getting hit by lightning. Like the world was still going. And there are a lot of people that don't believe in God. And there are a lot of people that believe in other gods. And the world was still going. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like here's all these gay friends I'm making. Here are all these atheist friends that I'm making. And like they are still being nurtured and supported by this planet. And they seem okay. And that was just not my experience. I always thought they were kind of like listless. And they were ethical. They were beautiful. That was a big part of my story as well, was noticing that my atheist friends were very ethical, more ethical than some of my Christian friends, because my Christian friends were being good. But then we were having conversations that if it was allowed, we would do anything. (laughs) Like we just, we would lament that we couldn't do drugs. We wished that there had been some passage that they were like, do whatever you want. Cause we, I still know some Christians that are like that. They're like, if I didn't believe in God, I'd this, this, and this. And I'm like, God's not your problem. Like you sound like a sociopath, like you should go to therapy. (laughs) Um, But my atheist friends, even though they only believed in each other, wouldn't hurt people because they believed in each other. They wanted to make a world that was safe for other people. And I thought that was really beautiful, not for the promise of heaven, but for an attempt to make heaven here and now. He's getting closer. The next thing that happened was I took um, psychedelics. I took mushrooms, which I don't, I don't think is absolutely necessary, but for me it was a mystical experience in a compound. One of my favorite quotes about LSD and mushrooms and stuff is when Ramdas was in India, he asked them about LSD and, and they were like, of course, God came to the West as a material. You guys are materialistic. <laughs> and I love that image that God or the mystery or this is looking for us however it needs to come at us. You know, Maharaja used to say, God comes to the hungry in the form of food. So God came to the West in the form of a drug. Um, obviously, it's not that experience for everybody. But for me, and I've said this a million times, it's not so much what you see when you're hallucinating it's that you see you're seeing with something you sort of i had my experience of consciousness well it also unzips the the world that we see and inhabit every day where it's kind of like is the pavement as you think it is that's right you know is that tree the standalone object that you think it is because you actually are seeing things how they are you say hallucinate like you're going to see a dragon And don't get me wrong, sometimes you might see a dragon. Um, But you're also looking at the tree and you're like, wow, there seems to be a billion branches on this tree. But reach out and touch them. Each one of them is there. Your brain is no longer prioritizing the tree in a way that minimizes it because it knows through experience and through habit that the tree isn't really that important. (laughs) So it presents the whole tree. Like you see the wholeness of the tree, whereas your brain would be exhausted and worn out by 9 a.m. if you would just walk around constantly seeing everything as it is. So I thought hallucinogens made us see elves and stuff, and certainly high doses of them will. But the doses that I've taken almost for the exclusively have been this enhancing, meaning this room, you, me, the couch, the light. This is a fucking miracle cascading. I'm, I'm holding light right now in my hands. And those, those substances helped me, get, helped me get in touch with that. So the real takeaway, though, was that I had an experience that I couldn't speak about. 
when I came back, you realize you're sort of being deposited back on earth. And as I'm kind of coming back into my ego, so I'm leaving my true self and coming into my ego and I go, oh no, I'm going to have to talk about this and ruin it. Like I'm going to have to start saying like, it was like, I say in the book, lying under a glass coffee table and the heavens are as close as the magazines, right? That's just, that's just a analogy. I've never translated it well. That's the point. I've written it down and like read it the next day and been like, this is gibberish. Yeah. Like it made, it made crystal clear. Yeah. You know, the universe made so much sense. Because you can only be wise. This is Ramdas. You can know knowledge, but you can only be wise. And you can only be one with everything. You can't communicate oneness with everything, but you can go there. And that was, that was my experience, I realized afterwards. And that really opened my heart to the idea that stories like the Bible or whatever were trying to touch the ineffable. And instead of looking at them as like, these are literal stories or these are metaphors or myths, it was like, it doesn't matter. It's like whatever gets you there to a place that is very real, because I had experienced it on the, on the chemical, um, and I've experienced it off the chemical in numerous times, multiple times. I spend a lot of my day not tripping, but more and more of my day in that place. And because I took a psychedelic, I realized that that place was real. It's not just a story that we're singing about. The kingdom of heaven really is here. And now I'd like to add to that. Where else could it be? Where else could it be? Where else could it be? Can we talk about how you found your 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 current spirituality? Because you started finding teachers. Yeah. And you started finding a way to make the world make sense again, essentially. Yeah. Sure. Well, I was very lucky. I um, After I took mushrooms, I think I started talking about it on my podcast, which I started a few years after that. And then fans started reaching out. So there's a lot of us, um, people that grew up Christian and lost our faiths. And there's even a lot of us that got married young and had our partners leave or some other tragedy that made us lose our faiths. And what's beautiful about the internet um, you know, if, if, if Jesus or uh, Buddha had existed in the time of podcasts and the internet, <laughs> I mean, I think we would realize that like awakened, enlightened beings aren't necessarily what we were always told, which was these one time only phenomena, is that there's a potential for multiple on the planet at the same time. It's not even the point is that this this experience is here for people to get to potentially. Um, the small way that that started happening for me was that I'd talk about these feelings and then I'd get emails or tweets and stuff. And one of them was from this guy named Matt Ruby, who was like, I really think you'd like Joseph Campbell. And I bought the power of myth on DVD, which actually it's actually on Netflix now. And, um, I watched the power of myth and that is an academic approach. That's what I always tell people if they're God curious but they don't want to um, plug into any specific tradition. They just kind of want to enjoy all traditions and what they have in common. And again, being academic about it and being like, these are symbols and these are metaphors and these are stories trying to touch a place that's impossible to talk about. Joseph Campbell's your guy. And if you're not an academic and you don't want to read Hero with a Thousand Faces, which is very dense, um, you can watch The Power of Myth, which was a PBS special. 
And in that, he says that God is a metaphor for a mystery that absolutely transcends all categories of human thought, including being and non-being. And a metaphor, I didn't know what a metaphor was, but a metaphor, an analogy is a man ran like a deer, and a metaphor is the man was a deer, right? So God, the analogy would be God is like an old man in the sky, old being, he's been around since the beginning, in the sky, meaning as a perspective where he can see all things, um, and that becomes a metaphor. God is a man in the sky, uh, old man in the sky. But it's a metaphor. It's it's a it's a vehicle to get at a truth that's impossible to talk about. So we use these stories in the way that music and art and sex and color and sound can move us. We use stories to get closer to something than we can get to it with literal truth. Literal truth being, as Richard Rohr says, one of the lowest levels of truth. Great if you're building a bridge or developing a vaccine <laughs> or driving a car. The literal truth is your best friend. But when it comes to the ineffable mystery of infinity, you're going to want a story. You're going to want. You're going to want to sneak past your brain to get into your heart, which is where real transformation changes. That that's also that's that's Jungian. You know, Carl Jung says we're only transformed by symbols only by symbols. He was big into the archetypes. Not facts. He's like, if you want to get someone to like quit drinking, quit smoking, it's a strange thing that like facts won't really get you there. You know what I mean? They know it's killing them. That's a fact. But like we need a, we need something else to transform ourselves and symbols are how we get to those deeper changes, not just habitual changes, but like how you view reality. So I started looking at the Bible as a myth overlain on history, certainly there are historical things happening in the Bible as well. It's a strange book in that way, that it's sort of reporting history and it's sort of telling you a story that contradicts itself because depending on which gospel you read, they're speaking to a different audience and a Semitic writer doesn't care about facts as much as he cares about transmitting a feeling. Alexander Shai did my podcast. We talked about this. He was like, if, if a Semitic storyteller is talking to a poor person, he'll tell a story about someone loses $5. He's talking to a rich person. He'll say he lost $10,000 because he doesn't care about the facts. These are the types of writers and poets we're, we're looking and reading at, reading at, reading when we read the Bible. Unfortunately, we read it in a Western bridge building, car making, vaccine developing way where we're like, well, it says this, God said it, I believe it, and that does it. When these guys are inviting us to a dance or, or a play of light so much more than um, a TED talk, we're talking about the infinite mystery. It's not going to be in a pie chart. It's going to be a virgin birth. If you can't handle virgin birth, the the koan, the paradox of a virgin birth, you're not going to get very far in this. So it's asking you right at the beginning of the story, this isn't the type of story that your brain is going, going to enjoy. I might as well say like a dead living person. Then you go, that doesn't make sense. It's like, that's right. This is why Buddhists sit and meditate on unsolvable riddles, because they're trying to exhaust their brain so their heart can get the ticket to the show and get on the rocket ship and go into the fucking cosmos. You can't bring your brain. I know you'd like to. As Ramdas says, you'd like to know and know that you know. Fuck off. It's not about him. That shit dies. I'm not here to convert the shit that dies. I'm here to wake up that in you that doesn't die. God damn it. <laughs> and so your teachers were Ramdas. <laughs> Let, let's talk about the facts that were like that you were like, yeah, but get to who told you these let's, things. Yeah, let's so but we started with Joseph Joseph Campbell. Campbell but yeah. that's great because it's academic. It's very, 
hey, don't worry, I'm not here to convert you. Let's just talk about how these texts work. From Joseph Campbell, somebody, I can't really go in order today, I don't know why, but somebody told me to read Be Here Now. I write about this in the book. Be Here Now is Ram Dass's story because somebody was like, look, you took psychedelics and you had a spiritual experience. So did Ram Dass. Ram Dass was a professor, Richard Alpert, at Harvard. He took um, psilocybin, same age as I was, 31. Um, and he had a trip that made him start to wonder about the nature of reality. And that brought him to India. He met Maharaji. Um, there's pictures of him all over here. Uh, who taught him meditation, taught him all these things that we take for granted. You drive down Santa Monica Boulevard, you see all these yoga studios, meditation series. It's because of what happened in the 60s and 70s with psychedelics and and meditation and Ramdas. So he comes back. Um, Be Here Now basically happens. He didn't really write it. it. sort of came together in this very groovy way, which is a story for another time. Then I read it some 30, 40 years later, 30 years. It didn't make any sense to me. And I put it aside. I never, ever recommend that people start with Be Here Now. I think that's a terrible idea. If you want to start with, uh, if you want to get into Ramdas, it's called Experiments in Truth. It's on iTunes. Um, it's a series of lectures because that's how Ramdas started. When he came back from India, he was wearing a dress. He had beads. He had a long beard. He had long hair. Um, and this was a guy who was very clean cut, Harvard professor. So he comes back with this new name, which means servant of God. And the talks were recorded. That is the greatest, one of the greatest graces of my life is that these talks were recorded. Because when you hear them, it's not just the words, it's the transmission, it's the vibe, it's the feeling of a time and a place and a, and a message that really doesn't matter how you phrase it, you feel it as he's talking about it. That being said, a little bit more practically, that is where I started getting into some of these Eastern ideas that sort of softened my Christianity um, or my Christian ethics and my Christian story sort of gave it some air, like put air into it so the bread would rise. <laughs> so all of this Buddhism, all of this Hinduism, all of this Taoism started coming into my life because of those lectures. And that led me to Alan Watts, who I, I recommend. Alan Watts. Alan Watts is incredible. And a great way to get into Alan Watts is to just go on YouTube and type in Alan Watts. People have made great oh, videos. Yeah. They're great. I have his books. I have his lectures. I still go on YouTube. It's some of the best way to consume. And same with Ramdas. You can get some great free stuff on YouTube. And you start meeting these Buddhists that don't want to convert you. This, this is sort of where I'm getting that, like, I don't care what you believe. I'm not here to UPC scan the contents of your brain. In fact, it really bores me to hear what people believe. I want to I talk to people who are being, who are sort of trans-rational, trans, beyond their thoughts. Because you can feel it when you're with them. So Alan Watts, and then for the Christians or people that were raised Christian, these books are right over there. Love Wins by Rob Bell really salved my fear of hell and started opening me to the idea that that's not what Christ was talking about. But it does it in that way that if you're um, still sort of scared of the God of the Bible, he'll use the God of the Bible to talk about how that's kind of missing the mark on our story of hell. So Love Wins softened me back to Christ. And then I found Richard Rohr. His books are also all over here. And Richard Rohr is, is it, man. Richard Rohr is, I don't want to rank him. That's not very mystical of me. But like, 
Richard Rory is as important as any of anybody. As he is one of the greatest joys of my life is to find people like Richard Rohr from the Franciscan tradition, studied to be a priest since he was a teenager, became a priest, has been a priest his whole life. And just like Thomas Merton, and just like all these other Christian mystics, discovered the exact same truths that Ram Dass taking LSD and studying Hinduism discovered. So you start getting really juiced that there is something going on here, and it's so much more beautiful and sexy and alive and true and real and alive and living than we thought it was. And it's not about in, out, us, them, in, right, wrong. It's beyond all that stuff. So those are those are the teachers. And I, I sort of found them because they inform each other. You start reading Rob Bell. Um, you listen to Rob's podcast. There's Richard Rohr. In my case, I know Rob, so Rob tells me about Richard Rohr. Actually, his wife, Kristen, told me to read Falling Upward, which is a great place to start. Um, one of the best books, even if you have no spiritual interests, it is a great book. <laughs> it's just about life, and it references a lot of different traditions, so it's not going to corner you. But then The Universal Christ is his latest book, and I think it's his best. And you start getting into what contemplation is. Contem- com- contemplative prayer is the, pres- is the practice of presence, is be here now is the eternal present. And the, and then Eckhart Tolle is my current obsession and has been the power of now and a new earth on audiobook in particular will I I mean Val and I I'm so blessed and grateful for a, a partner that is into this stuff. We're both just constantly listening to those books. I think the process of listening to them literally is the process of waking up. I don't think there's, I don't think you can listen to them and not be melting. You will melt. Even if you don't understand it, just listen to it again. You'll keep melting. It's it's a gorgeous, it's a gift. Be Here Now is one of the first ones I, I listened to when I got sober. Be Here Now? Yeah. What do you mean you listened to it? It was not, Or not Be Here Now, uh, excuse me. Um, Power of Now. Power of Now, yeah. That's it, man. I'm not surprised. It's great, right? It's great. Yeah. Oh, I used to fall asleep to it too. Just you don't really have to nightly. pay attention. Yeah. It's not like a you're going to be quizzed on this. It's like let it. All of these guys will tell you that there's something in between the words that's getting into you, and that sounds very woo-woo and silly. But the more that I go, like where I met your mom, to these talks, I don't really care what you're saying. Great. Another story. Sometimes that's awesome. I'm sort of there for the vibes. That's just where I'm at. Like I go on that picture right there is Ram Dass. And that's what it's like when you go on a private retreat with him. And I sat with him three times. And I think you're supposed you're sort of encouraged to like talk. And I just wanted to sit. That doesn't make me special or good. There's certainly a part of me that's like, aren't I cool? And I just sit with him. But that's what I'm about now. I just want to share space, not just with Ramdas, with people, Michael Gunger, if I can plug him, I just had lunch with him. He wrote a book called This. That book will fucking blow your head. It's unbelievable. And hanging with Michael, being with somebody that knows, not trying to be here now, but somebody, because if you, this is what David Nickturn taught me. If you're trying to be here now, there's still somebody trying. You want all of that to dissolve where just nowness is happening. It's so much less effortful than we think it is. 
And that happens with practice. And when I'm hanging with Michael and sharing some here and now with him, I would rather do that as a, you know, I'm a fancy showbiz jerk than go to some dinner with, I don't know, Kanye West or something. Like I've, I've gotten to the point where you're like, that's the juice. Like Val and I have not gone to some Hollywood thing because the Gungers are having, we're going to sit by the fire and just fucking it's here and now I want the people that know what I'm talking about when I'm like, we are miracles waiting for a miracle. It's already here. Nothing's going to change. We're waiting for something to change. It's this. It's here. It's here. It's here. It's here. How did you and Val meet each other? Online. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, don't, I know a lot of people meet each other online, but for some reason, I like that we met in the wild. We met at a, a club, Cobb's Comedy Club in San Francisco. And um, I was doing a show with Kyle Kinane. We were co-headlining. So this was a while ago. Um, and she, I used to do meet and greets when I, um, there was a nice part where I, I didn't have a TV show yet, but I had a podcast. So meet and greets were kind of manageable. I know I'm sort of like an unrelatable topic, but meaning I could do it in an hour. I think if I did a meet and greet now, because there's different tiers of fans, there's fans of this show and there's fans of the podcast and there might be fans of the book. It would just take too long. But back in these days, I could bang it out in an hour, and I loved it. It's also back when I was drinking, and I would drink in the line, and that was really, really fun. <laughs> Cobbs is small enough, too, right? They it's can, also small. Yeah. Totally. They can talk to everybody. Totally. Now you might do a bigger venue, and you're like, and there's another show. You just can't do it. Um, but back then, I would do meet and greets. And I remember she was wearing a, a, a spotted blue dress that she borrowed from a friend. And I was, I said this to her parents recently. I was like, I'm so glad that I was just feeling social. Because I don't always feel social after shows. Sometimes I'll feel tired. I mean, I just did two shows. But I saw Val. And as I say in the book, as I get older, I'm sure this will morph into a love at first sight story. And that's not entirely untrue. It, I felt this connection. And it makes me smile to remember it. And I just said, do you want to get a drink? And there was this bar with a red martini glass next door. And she, she, if she was here, she'd say, oh, I bet he's saying this to a bunch of people to kind of like play numbers, <laughs> invite a lot of pretty girls to the bar. But it was just her and, and we went and we stayed in touch. Um, she thought we'd just hang out that night and it would be over. But we used to fly uh, to San Francisco and meet there because it was in between where we were living and would meet there once a month. And then it would be like twice a month. And then it got to the point where I was like, this is stupid. And then she moved to LA. Wow. It was awesome. How did you, I guess, let the relationship unfold without your previous fears? Because, uh, you know, you went 10 years, right? And that's one of the fears that comes up for me often. 10 years. Married, right? You were married for 10 years? Oh, I was married for seven. Seven. Oh, sorry. It's okay. And so I was in this four-year relationship and we didn't fight for two years, right? Things started to unravel, I think, at like year three. But it was still like, we're never going to break up. And so I noticed when I'm dating now, like this very real thing goes, well, we didn't fight for two years. Like me and this person could get along great now, but what about four years down the road? And how did you let, because now you're happily married. I mean, it's just, it's it was visible when I met your wife yesterday, mm. you know, that she's in a very happy home and that, you know, you have a beautiful child. 
how did you let the relationship not get not shit all over it with your previous experience yeah that's a good question relationships to me again we go into them with our head i think but then we foster and exist in them with our heart so i don't spend a lot of time thinking about our relationship or using my brain <laughs> in our relationship that sounds crazy but like for here's a practical way of putting that we're not tit for tat there's no tallying Obviously, when we were dating, I was trying to see if this was the type of person that could do this. Like, will this person meet my needs? Is she Does she listen to me? Like, I have a lot of needs. Does she listen to me? Is she kind? Is she patient? Is she sweet? Is she... All those, all those things were checked. So there was a analyzing time. I'm not a dummy. I'm not just... <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It, and, and it's not just luck. It's not just like, oh, I guess Val. Like... I am discerning. I am the guy that will will break up or call something off because I'm just like their favorite movie is, you know, like I'm like Seinfeld in that way. I'll just she eats her peas one at a time. Like I've been with somebody and I'm like, "Can I date this hat?" Like I have that part of me. "Can I date these shoes? Can I date someone that wears high heels on a walking date around Brooklyn like and then we can't walk?" Like so I I have that mode and i want to respect that and offer that so i don't sound like i'm floating on a cloud once that happens once i'm like this is my person and i remember when i was with val and we were like lounging around and i i caught myself on the precipice of a decision i was like wait is val my person mm-hmm. like i knew she was but i could feel like my brain was going hey boss are we filing this under my person? And I, it was in this house. I distinctly remember going like, yeah, right? But I was a little nervous. And after that, I'm, I, I was just in. Then you start living from the heart. So the tit for tat thing is like, our baby wakes up at six, sometimes a little bit earlier. Who gets up? Usually we don't even discuss it. If I feel, if I'm up, like if I hear the crying and I get up, I get up. Some mornings I'm you're just in the sleep cycle. She gets up, but we don't get up and go like, "Hey, I got up, so you get up tomorrow." And if I do the dishes, same thing. I don't go. I'm doing the dishes. These are the dishes. You know what I mean? It's not Val's job to do the dishes. These are the dishes. There's dishes, and they're going to be done. But when I do them, I don't go. Val better do the dishes tomorrow. So that's all head stuff. And I think a lot of times we're in our heads when we're in relationships. But when you're in a good relationship and you're in a safe relationship, you can start operating in your heart. And where is the heart? The heart is now. And the heart... So to make this a little bit less woo, something... I love Seinfeld. And Seinfeld says something about like, if that happens, you'll deal with it. You know what I mean? If you start arguing, you'll deal with it. Because that'll be in that moment. Deal with that moment. Just, we get into trouble or I get into trouble when we're like, oh, well, Val did that. Is that going to get worse as we get older? Mm -hmm. Just be here. Tomorrow is not promised. And I'm, I'd say this if Val was here. I'm absolutely certain that Val is my person. Could something go wrong? Yeah. (laughs) What? What are you talking about? Who can predict the future? 
Here's something I can definitely predict. You don't experience the future you imagine. That doesn't happen for anybody. So why bother? Seinfeld, as I mentioned, he's a big like, if it happens, deal with it. That's something I learned with stand-up. You get to the show. What if it's a disaster? You deal with it. You'll be okay. And then to get really woo-woo about it, it's not who you are anyway. Whatever the relationship is, is a vehicle to enlighten both of us. It's a vehicle to bring more truth and love into the world. It's not about me looking like a fancy boy and maintaining a good, happy, healthy relationship. So what? So a bunch of people that'll be dead in 30 years think I'm cool? Oh, look at Pete. How'd he do it? Fuck off. All these people are dead. 100 years, all new people. That's what we're doing? Jesus said, don't put your treasure where... where rot. I say it this wrong every time. Rust and moth corrupt. Don't put... That's moth and rust. A good marriage or a, a good career or a fancy house or whatever it is. I'm interested in something below that. And all of this, my marriage included, is a vehicle to get there. And Val knows that and we know that. And we love this life and we enjoy this life and we honor this marriage and we but it's not the truest game that we're playing. That's a, it's an ego trip to be like, look, like at my funeral, they're going to go, he was a faithful husband for 50 years. Everyone at that funeral is dead in 30 years. <laughs> but how about what are the. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you're impressed. My funeral. <laughs> oh, I definitely, my funeral people will be impressed. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm so, dead. Pete is so glad that you're impressed. What are though, if you could quantify them into words, what are the values and the the things that are important to you as a couple, as Val's partner, and as the father of your daughter? Yeah. yeah, I only want good for her. That's number one. I say that all the time. We have so so we have mantras. We have things that we repeat. I only want good for you. I think it's super weird that people tend to want good for you as long as it serves you as well. So I love Val unconditionally. That's something I work for. Obviously, it's not always... She doesn't challenge it, but it could be challenging if she was like, I want to be with this other person. I have to love her extremely and irrationally enough to be like, I'm on your side. I'll protest. I'll be like, I think you're doing the wrong thing, but I'm trying to love her in a way that doesn't even make sense. I'm trying to give her the love that I want. Isn't it weird that if I cheated on Val, I would tell you and not her, like if we were really good friends? Why? Because you'd want to hear the story. What happened? I was in Spain. I was drunk. It was the most beautiful person I've ever seen. And you'd go like, dude, it's fucked up. I don't think it was right, but I get it. Like, why are you loving me? You know what I'm saying? So I'm trying to give love that, 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 that top shelf real shit, not just you know, sitcom husband love. I'm trying to give her divine love. Like, oh, I'm going to fucking disturb you with how much I love you. So I only want good for you is number one. Number two is I see you in there. Um, we both independently put the phrase, I see you in there in our wedding vows. And we say that to each other all the time. I look her in the eyes and I say, I see you in there. And that is an acknowledgement that her body and her story uh, is not who she really is, that she is a, to put language to something that you can't really talk about. She's a soul and she is divine 
and she is playing a game that is much bigger than these 80 some odd years that we're doing on this earth. So to have a big perspective on like, I am a part of your large, infinite journey. I'm honored to be that part. I'm not even sure if we haven't done this before. <laughs> like maybe, maybe this isn't our first time around together. Maybe we're gonna keep finding each other. It's a kind of, it's a very romantic idea. It's like, I'll see you next time. See you. And I saw you before, but I see you in there. I see the real you and I'm in the service of that. Um, and then there's other stuff just like, obviously the basics, being kind. We look at each other like plants. I want to give get Val good soil. I say to my daughter, I'm here to help. That's my mantra for, for Leela. As I say, I'm here to help. And I say, you're welcome here. You're welcome here is just another way of saying, I love you. What if my daughter's an atheist? You're welcome here. What if she's a huge sports fan, which would be worse for me? You're welcome here. You are welcome. You are welcome. And I'm here to help. That's basically another way of saying, I only want good for you. So when you add that attitude of like, I want to give you good soil, I want to give you light, I want to give you water, that's very different from with Val or Leela, I want you to be this way or I want you to be this way. When we nourish each other, chances are they'll want to they'll wanna reciprocate. If you want to get into psychology and not spirituality, if like if somebody goes toxic on me, like I'm I'm your guy. You ever want to go through a breakup? and you want someone to coach you through that, I'm your guy. I'll be like, <laughs> dude, yeah, get out of that. Like, So I'm not just like, I wish I could be more like, hey, whatever happens, it's my karma. Like, deal with it, it's fine. I'm also, we could have a different conversation. I just happen to have found my flow enough and been, I've received a lot of grace and Val and Leela are the biggest representations of that. I'm gonna let them do that wall. Yeah. And he'll face away. There we go. Do you have... Yeah, I mean, I so I've listened to several programs. Yeah. We'll wrap up soon here. Oh, it's okay. I'm, Val just texted me. I'm just going to see what she said. Okay. I've listened to several programs. I love when you start talking about your family and your wife. <laughs> I do. I do. That's why I That's wanted hilarious. to hilarious. Well, because... Listen, I've, I've talked to some really cool creatives. Your mom reminds me a little bit of my mom. Yeah? Yeah, just a little bit. I've talked to some really cool creatives and you see the humanness and they're, they're rude to their help, right? I've been at somebody's house and they had somebody cook us lunch and they were rude to their help. Right. Or I've had somebody on who was talking about body acceptance and then I see diet stuff. Right. You know, and so I've seen, you know, that's why they say don't meet your heroes, right? Because you're going to see humans. I'm going to go yell at the gardener real quick. I'm just kidding. Okay. I'm just kidding. That was okay. a joke. Oh, got it. <laughs> I just, I just, I was like, all right. No, no, yell no. At that. He reminds me of the, um, the sea lion that kept stealing my bait when I was crabbing. I was like, God damn you. Like my mortal enemy, the gardener is ruining this <laughs> podcast that will live in no, eternity. I think you're good. Um, and so I've just, I just have a nose for genuineness and so i just that i wanted to ask about how you parent where you know some people i don't really want to know how they parent because i know that they're they're creating art and they're oh yeah you know they're not quite living up to their highest self with well i'm aware her. that people might because my daughter's only she's not even a year old that some parents might be like 
it goes back to what we were saying about relationships. They might be like, oh, yeah, well, wait till they start talking. It's like, yeah, wait till they start talking. That's good advice <laughs> or talk or walking. It's like, yeah, we'll deal with that when that happens. But how you are is how you are. Richard Rohr says that. He's like, how you do anything is how you do everything. So how I parent my baby is how I'll parent my teenager. And the answer is always consciousness. The answer is always awareness. The answer is always more honesty, more light, more here, more now. So are there going to be things that I'm not ready for? Yeah, great. I'm so glad you're ego tripping off that you know what it's like to raise a 10-year-old and I don't. I really hope that feels good. When your child wants to be a carnivore diet person. Yeah. <laughs> You know what, dude? I'm already there. Like, good. I'll grill her a steak. I'll um, grill her a steak if she wants a steak. Do you know how do you know how much steak I've eaten? Yeah. Don't we see we're only having compassion for ourselves? That's what's so weird. Is we we I become a vegan 6 years ago, then I'm supposed to start judging people that ate steak? It's me. There's no one in the other boat that goes into politics. Pro-life, pro-gun, Republican. That was me. I'm supposed to judge these people? It's me. It's me over there. I'm talking to myself. Buddy. One of the things I wanted to ask is, it's summer right now for me, right? So my my 10-year-old who wants time with, like really wants time with me, um, is out of school. And you're a producer you produce work and you produce it often and you you know you are a creative and you're honoring that those visions those things that are wanting to come out of you mm -hmm. and it's it is a balance right with being a, a good partner to val and being a good father to uh, a one-year-old who needs also a different kind of time than my 10-year-old needs mm -hmm. and it's tough right i just want to bike all day and play tennis with my son. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering how you how you do the balance. And just like I asked what the values were with you as a, a, a husband and a father, what are the values of who you want to be as an artist and somebody that, you know, you can at the end of your run said, I did it. I honored it. You know, uh, I mean, you really I love it because I don't have a lot of conversations about this, the practical stuff. Right. I love going way out there. But you got to get practical at a certain point. And my ex-wife, when she left me, she said, I don't want to be Pete Holmes's wife, right? And I got it. I knew what she meant. I wasn't successful yet, but she didn't even want that. She's like, even if you were successful, that's not my jam. Val wants to be Pete Holmes's wife. She's so much more than that. That has nothing to do with who she really is. She's a teacher. She's a dance instructor. She's a, She does all the stuff. She's a, her own person and she's gorgeous. But she likes sharing my life. She likes supporting my life. And that's fucking important, right? I So when you say the balance. So when I was shooting Crashing, Val came. And that was important to me. I wanted somebody that was like, look, my life is big enough for five people. Can I find somebody that's like not threatened by that? That she goes like, what a trip. Let's go to New York. Let's live in New York for four months. And I'll come to set and maybe I'll only see Pete for 45 minutes because he's in every scene. But Val becomes friends with all the writers and Val knows the actors and Val's eating at uh, the lunch table. And then we get to have a snuggle nap in my trailer and she's happy with that. And she's not keeping score. 
She's not going like, this sucks for me. Don't you know how this is for me? She, she likes it. She's game. She knew the benefit of Val. My ex-wife was, she didn't know what she was getting into. Val, I had the benefit of being like, this is what you're getting into. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's helpful. Like you're getting into something where somebody might get up at 4 a.m. And, and do some writing. And that's okay. You're also, I need you to be somebody that when I, if we're having dinner and I go, all right, I got to go. I'll be home in two hours. I have a show. She goes, where, where's your show? Instead of, I thought we were going to watch RuPaul's Drag Race. Like, I can't. I can't have that. I need you to know that there are certain things that I need. Just like when Val says, you're, today, you're going to be alone with the baby from 12 to 4. We share a calendar. So I, she knows I'm free. 12 to 4, you're going to be with the baby. I'm going to go to a dance class and I'm going to go to lunch with Annie. Uh, not your mom. And then I go, <laughs> you thought it was your mom. Um, and I go, okay, that's what she needs. We know what we need. I happen to be an addict. I'm an affirmation addict. I'm an attention addict. I'm a special addict. I don't surrender to those things, but that happens to be the case. If I don't do stand up, every once in a while, I start to get a little bit, not me, not right. I, yeah. I need my medicine. I need to write. I need to create. I need to produce. So I, I used to have a joke. It's not entirely true, but I had a joke where I was like, I'm a look at me. You know, those kids that go to the public pool and they beg for their parents to watch as they dive. That's just, that's what I do for a living. I beg people to look at what I'm doing. I show off. And for some reason, compulsion, psychologically, all these different reasons, I need it. I like it. I need it. When I get it, I feel like everything's right with the world. It's like an antidepressant. It's an anti-anxiety. It's a, it's a oneness increasing. It's the most gorgeous feeling in the world when I feel like I connected with an audience. Um, so Val understands that. And I say, so Val is an ICU. Val's not just an ICU, but I needed somebody. If, if I'm a look at me, a look at me needs to marry or be with an ICU. And the way that Val needs to be seen, I see her. But they're not the same ways. We're not competing. She's not... I used to, that joke again was like, I wouldn't be good with it if like I came home and Val was like, I'm going to do stand up. <laughs> but I would also be shocked if she said that. She's just not that person. And that's where the practical head stuff comes in is I knew I'm a three. Do you know the Enneagram? Yeah, a little. I'm an achiever. Achiever threes don't do well with other threes. I didn't marry a three. I married a nine with a one wing. <laughs> like that's a good choice for a three. She is a supportive, nurturing, safe place for me to be honest and to not perform where I can be myself and I can feel at home. That's a good match for a three. A three with another three, get out of here. Right. So there's some practical advice. Take the Enneagram test. Take the Myers-Briggs. Do what you can to know yourself, especially when you're pairing up with somebody. So for all my woo-woo, let's be in our heart. There was a lot of like, I'm a three. This is my problem. I will deceive people to achieve. Like, that's a problem for me. Let's keep an eye out for that. She's a nine. Her problem is sloth. Okay, well, I can kind of do this, 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 this whatever it might be. Um, so, yeah, that, that's that's some practical advice for relationships. Is there a, a mantra or thought you hold when you wake up on a Monday and you don't want to honor that creative spirit? You don't feel like sitting at the computer and typing? or well it's that's a it's a long it's a long conversation it's funny i went to your mom's um with full 
respect because I know she might hear this. Um, she won't hear it. She might. No, she's only listened to episodes I've forced upon her. Really? Oh, yeah. She's a big fan of mine, though. I'm just kidding. I'm totally joking. But she loves you, but she'll never listen to your podcast. I love it. She doesn't do it. Who, why would she need to? She's got her own things. Yeah. She doesn't need my things. Um, meaning thoughts, inspiration. She's doing fine. But I went to her writing seminar at the Ramdas retreat. And I thought it was wonderful and effective and everyone was taking notes, leaving, inspired to write their book and to do it and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, wow, we have very different approaches. <laughs> She's like, just do it. She's just bird by bird. Just get in the chair, fucking write, force yourself to write. And I am of the, I am a little bit more ethereal about it. So this is where I write. We're in the room where I write. And a lot of the time I'll come in and I'll go, nope. <laughs> and I don't force it. I look at it like I'm trying, I'm hunting a deer, but I don't want to shoot the deer. I want to kiss it on the mouth and I want it to kiss me back. I want a little deer tongue. So I'm tiptoeing through the woods. I'm trying to fill myself up with good things, trying to watch good movies, trying to read good books, mostly stuff like Ramdas, like spiritual stuff, I'm trying to listen to good music, I'm trying to have good conversations like this, I'm trying to have good friends. I'm trying to have good experiences as if, you know, I don't know which one of it it is, but somewhere in that cocktail, ideas start to get delivered to me and they show up. And when they, when I feel it and I know it's there and it's only 30%, I feel like writing. That's as good as it gets. It's never a hundred percent. Maybe it's occasionally a hundred percent. Like I got to write. Like you just feel it. But I've learned if anything, I've learned to answer the 30. You feel, I say to Val, I don't give a lot of advice cause I'm an, I'm an annoying advice giving person. So I don't give her a lot of advice cause that can be annoying. <laughs> I can relate. Right. Yeah. Maybe you're a one. I just feel like I know what's best for you. Yeah. You know, but you know, maybe you're like me too, because I need advice. I love advice. I yeah. So I'm like, why wouldn't you want my advice? I'm giving you the secret. So here's the advice. That's why I love podcasts, because I don't know who I'm talking to. So here it is if you want it. Kind of wanting to work is as good as it gets. So if you kind of want to work, that's the only thing you have to learn to do is identify that kind of wanting to work is as good as it gets for me. And then following that through. And then there is a little bit of a like, sometimes sitting and waiting, you know, for the muse to show up, for the deer to show up. Sometimes the deer shows up, but I usually wait when I'm like right now I'm adapting something. So I'll read what I'm adapting and I'll read it before bed. Then I go to bed. You're goddamn right. I'm going to wake up at 6am with some ideas and I'll just email them to myself, like wanting to actually put them in a script or flesh them out as a different mode. But as long as I can get those kernels down, that's what I show up for. Like the difference between a comedian and a regular funny person is the comedian writes it down, right? And works on it and obviously performs on a stage. But like the first thing is that we write it down. So you just write down your thoughts. I do a lot of emails to myself. I'd say most of my emails are to myself and or texts. Most of my texts are to myself. And then eventually at some point I'll sit down and actually put them into a thing and usually at that point, it's fun because you have all the inspiration. But my life is the creative process. I'm trying to live a life. I'm trying to have a, a love. I'm trying to have a routine that is conducive. I'm 
trying to have a diet that's conducive to creativity. I'm trying to not do, I, I don't drink. I barely uh, smoke pot anymore because I'm trying to get the levels right of what makes the deer show up. That being said, sometimes I will get really stoned and just fuck a day. And then the next day I'll have a great day writing. Like I, I, I don't really know. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm trying to, Val, one of the great things about living with somebody is they can point out what you didn't know about yourself. And Val said, whatever Pete is doing, he thinks the answer is the opposite. So if I'm not smoking pot for a year and I, I get a little bit of writer's block or something, or I just hit a stale part, I'll smoke pot. She's like, what do you do? You don't smoke pot. And I'm like, I haven't. And then the next day I get up and I write and I'm like, look, it, the answer was pot. And then I hit a block. It's always four days after smoking pot. I'm just like, fuck pot. And then I stop smoking pot. And then I start writing again. She's like, just whatever it is, coffee, naps, meditation, exercise, the sauna. We're in my room with my sauna. Whatever it is. It's There's like, a sauna in his office. You want to change what you're doing. Get up early. Sleep in. Just change it. Travel. You ever travel? You go to a different time zone? Why do I always feel better when I'm traveling? Dude, because you're yeah, up. Creatively. You're also like, you're awake when you would be dreaming. Mm -hmm. So it's 9 p.m., but it's really 2 a.m., but you're up. And that's when your brain is so used to making these three-dimensional living movies. So of course you're going to have some great ideas. It's, it's, it's in you. Disrupting a routine is a great way to be creative. And that's why as a stand-up, I'm really, I'm really grateful that I'm always flying to different time zones and stuff, because that's when a lot of ideas will show up. Showering, being grounded, swimming in the ocean. I'm always trying different things, but I'm not hard on myself. Anybody that's like, you have to write every day. Everybody that's like, you have to force yourself to do it. I'm like, I want the idea to be so big and bright in me that I have to write it down. But that's 20 years in. I'm the same way though. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the guests was like, listening to my plans for what I was going to do. And she's like, yeah, but it's like, how about being kind to yourself? And it was just like all the, the plan disappeared. It evaporated right there. I, that's and what I got. Your mom was giving a message to me for a lot of sixes and, and nines, people that have a hard time motivating themselves. Again, I'm a three. I don't struggle with motivating myself. So I get more juice out of saying like, when I did stand up, people were like, you have to go up every night. I'm like, well, I go up three times a week. And I have a voice in my head that says, and I'm producing at a level that I think is better than you. So you should really follow me. I'm not going to follow you. That's just the arrogance of the three. But it works for me. Like, I like that. And I'm the same way with writing. If somebody's like, just get your butt in that seat and stare at the cursor. I'm like, I don't do that. Go for a hike. Listen to some music. Take the day off. I take a Sabbath. Sunday, no phone, no fucking email. I get a uh, an envelope and a pen. So many great ideas on that day. I kind of cheat and write them down, but I don't work at all. It's the best thing I could do for my work. Who's telling us that? I've had to relearn how to work like that though, because I used to work with intense, right? I mean, that's also my that's my mom's way too. So I used to wake up with with like intense ways of getting me up, like wake up somebody else is working towards their dream and it's like some, right. some i used to do that some too. pie that they're stealing your part of it yeah and like if you don't do this blah right fear guilt shame if you don't do this blah like get up you bum get up get to work you're lazy you i know? used to do that too and the construction workers don't want to go to work they go to work yeah and you can't get in the writing chair yeah 
that doesn't work for me. So, but it's been weird. Like when I first started, I had to accept that I could only productively work harmoniously with myself for two hours. Yeah. And then I learned how to do three hours and it's been a slow process. I'm 20 years in, I'm four hours. I can write for four hours. That's it. I had a tarot reading. That's great. I had a tarot reading the other day where the guy said, you have to learn how to only have four hour work days. And I said, are you kidding me? I'm going to figure that out. (laughs) If I can do four hours of writing, of like writing. And now I'd like to point out that your mom is a way better, right? I'm not just saying that she's prolific and she's better than me. But I'm not doing, I'm not going after what she's going after. That's why, like, we have to listen. What is it that we're going after? Your mom is a fucking dyed in the wool book writer. She's amazing. She's amazing at other things too, but I'm just saying, I'm a comedian who also writes. It's a different game. A lot of what I write is going to come out on stage differently, going to communicate it differently. My brain is editing in real time. The audience, the adrenaline of the audience changes how I perform it. I'm, dropping a line and moving a line all happening on the fly so it's just a different game but the point is whether you're doing it your mom's way your way my way it doesn't matter we and it's a cliche but you need to find your way and you need to honor and love what works for you and if there's one thing i can say is i'm always looking i never stop looking because whatever starts working for me stops working And then I try something else. And one of those things that I have tried and do try and will try again is what your mom says, which is just haul yourself in and sit there and be bored and look. Sometimes that works for me. But I'm I'm kind. I try to lure that deer over with treats, not not discipline. I try to just go like, he'll be over. David Mamet, right? They say, where do you come up with your ideas? And he goes, I think of them. And I'm like, <laughs> I love the 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 bowing to, the answer really is, I don't know. Yeah, I think of them as deliveries. You ever order something on Amazon you don't even remember, shows up and you're like, what is this? That's how I am with my ideas. They come in and you go like, what is this? Sometimes it's something I thought 10 years earlier and it comes back, return to sender. And I open it up and it becomes one of the best things I've ever said on stage or this or that. I'm like, wow, that's 10 years old. Just, I'm trying to be a fertile, safe environment for ideas. Yeah. Because they're skittish. But effort isn't always the best thing. (laughs) Trying to be funny isn't very funny. No. And trying to write a great book isn't really a great way to write a book. When I... A lot of the best stuff that I would write, like going to see my parents, you mentioned my parents, or going to see somebody who believed how I used to believe, that would motivate me to write. My friend um, Pat Walsh had a had a very funny show about the year of living biblically, and I would watch that, and I would see how Western Christians looked at the Bible, and that would motivate me to write about what I thought was wrong. So sometimes anger, not anger, but like um, debate would inspire me. But that's not just sitting at a screen. Like going and hanging out with my parents and realizing what it is, what machine it is I'm raging against would inspire me to write much more than being in just being alone. And I'm sure your mom would agree with that, by the way. Like going going to a party and having a conversation, that's where the ideas come from. But life, live a life worth commenting on. Get out there, get in the mix. That's where your feelings are going to come from. And then, again, to agree with your mom, I've also learned, I just go here. I come here just to see. I do. Yeah. Just to see. I've that's listening to the 30% itch. You go like, I kind of want to write. You're goddamn right I write. You don't 
do the things that I do without knowing how to listen to the very faint phone ringing. And I'll, you know, ask Val. I'll, I'll, uh, I don't do it often, but I'll leave a party or leave a dinner or, or like I said, get up in the middle of the night or whatever it is, because that's my, that's, that's an important call for me. And I've given myself a life where people understand that. If I go, I got to go do a stand-up set. I have people that go, have a great show. My ex-wife would be like, I thought we were going to dinner. Mm -hmm. And be like, shit, I I fucked up. (laughs) Let me contort to you. Yeah. Uh, So you've been incredibly generous with your time. Yes. I think I have to go soon. I'm... I will let you go soon. Almost done. I'm just telling Val. Yeah. But uh, this is the way I like to end the program. Hit it. There's two prompts, and you can take either one, just depending on what feels more natural to you. Okay. If I could hand you a phone right now. I'm holding a phone. My phone, the cosmic phone. <laughs> this is a special phone. If I could hand you the phone right now, and on the other line would be 28-year-old Pete. Yeah. When he most desperately needed some guidance, some words to listen to, or to say your, your grown daughter who maybe you're not around for, but you could you could send her a message yeah. that she could hang on to for a while until she's really growing into herself. Mm-hmm. What would what would you want to leave them with? Not it's going to be okay. It is okay, and it's never not been okay. It's the prodigal son. I am always with you, and everything I have is yours. It's already here. That is the message. Twenty eight year old Pete was waiting for something to save him, was waiting for it to be okay, was waiting for the circumstances in his life to match the model that he had in his brain. And I would say the mechanism of being, of consciousness, that is waiting for that to happen is the kingdom of heaven, is the miracle. The thing within which you are waiting for the miracle is the miracle. So if if I wasn't around for my daughter, I would be like, this is it. I, no one's going anywhere. (laughs) I understand the story, the body that you might miss is gone, but it's all, no one's in the other boat. It is a fountain. It is undulating. You've never not been home. You've never not been home and I've never not been with you. And you're going to make me cry because I'm talking to my daughter as if I'm dead, but it's just like, it's this, it's this, it's this. Ramdas used to walk into a hotel room when he was lonely on the road and they'd say, I'm home. You've never not been home. This is just a building. That's just a car. This is just a garage. It's this, it's this, it's this. The thing that's wanting more is the thing. As St. Francis said, what you're looking for is what you're looking with. That's, that's the kingdom of heaven. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. Hey, so that's the end of this conversation. But if you don't want the conversation to end, you can follow us on social media on almost every platform. We're at hellohumans.co, except for Twitter, which has an underscore CO. Our website is hellohumans.co. We have great stories, videos, and the episodes live there as well. And for more of our guests, for more of any of our guests, I always post their social media, their books, their videos, their art in the show notes, which is another word for the podcast episode description, and it's available wherever you're listening. I promise you just have to click around. 
If you'd like to help us out more, there's a few ways you can help. Please share this podcast with your friends or people that you think would get value out of it. Writing us a review on iTunes is incredibly helpful for our ratings. And also, of course, this program is not possible without listener community contribution. So our patrons are our financial backbone of this product. That's how we manage to do this ad-free. You can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash how to human. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash how to human. This is the How to Human podcast, a production of hellohumans.co. Until next time, have a great day.